women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants to hear your voice. Welcome back to She Roars, a podcast about change and the Princeton women who drive it forward, before, during, and after their time here on campus. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and my guest today is Wendy Kopp, class of 1989. Wendy is founder of Teach for America. That was a revolutionary startup back when it first launched some 30 years ago. Teach for America has matured under Wendy's leadership, evolved, and grown into a global model for educational reform. And Wendy's currently CEO of the relatively new international umbrella organization called Teach for All. Wendy, thank you very, very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I have to start at the very beginning on this one because the very beginning was Princeton University. In fact, I know you've probably told the story a thousand times, but I hope you can again because it's the biggest shout out we've got for the value of the <laughs> undergraduate thesis. How did Teach for America start? So um, I was actually perhaps the most delinquent senior in my class, and I did not have a thesis topic as of November, my senior year. Um, and, you know, I think in general, I was I was just in a funk and, and was searching for, you know, what do I want my life to be about? I, now that, you know, I'm in a senior year, yeah. I have to figure that out. And I had organized a conference, um, which happened that fall, on education, uh -huh. um, where we brought student leaders from all over the country together with business leaders and others to, to consider, like, what do we need to do to tackle the educational disparities in and, our country? And this makes sense because you were in the Woodrow Wilson School, as I recall, right? Yes. Yeah. And I was working for a student-run organization that was all about getting student leaders talking to, you know, governmental and business leaders and such. Um, so we organized this conference, and at the conference... Um, some of the students were talking about the fact that we didn't know there were these educational challenges in our country. And if we were called upon to teach, um, we would we would jump at that chance. Huh. And so that really led me to this idea, which gave me the thesis topic, which gave me, you know, the pursuit that that I've been, you know, undertaking ever since for the last 30 years now. Okay, so let's can you encapsulate encapsulate that big idea? What was the big idea there? So at the time, our generation was was known as the me generation. I mean, supposedly we all just wanted to run out and work in banks and in consulting firms and make a lot of money. And I was convinced that that wasn't right. I mean, I felt that, that I was one of thousands of, of people in my generation who were just searching for a way to make a real difference. And that actually the issue was that the only recruiters of liberal arts mm -hmm. graduates like myself were investment banks and management consulting firms banging down our doors asking us to commit just two years to work in their firms. Mm -hmm. And so the big idea was to say, well, what if we were also being asked to commit just two years to teach in our urban and rural public schools? Mm -hmm. um, and, and from the minute I thought of it, I became obsessed with both the immediate impact that could have for kids, but also the fact that, you know, if we take all these future leaders and have their first experience out of college be teaching in low-income communities instead of working in banks on Wall Street, we'll change our country. Mm -hmm. Like, we'll change the priorities of a generation, the consciousness of our leadership. Um, so that was the big idea mm -hmm. at the start. And, you know, it's really interesting. I'd love to talk about that scale-up process because I think a lot of people – uh, are interested in social entrepreneurship, and, and, and maybe we can get to that in a second. But I want to flash forward because now it is 30 years later, approximately, and you have raised 
dare I say raised, a generation of, of, of uh, alumni. Anyway, what, 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 how would you view the impact mm-hmm. now, 30 years later? Well, so over the last 30 years, 60,000 people have channeled their energy into more than 50 urban and rural communities across the country, made those initial two years two-year commitments to teach, and, and then never left the work. You know, 85% mm-hmm. of them are still full-time, long-term working in education and or other pursuits that are all about expanding opportunity for kids and families in low-income communities. Really? That's a, that's a really high percentage, actually, 85% retention. Yeah. 66%, you know, two-thirds of them in education and others in everything from public health to policy to legal services, et cetera. Um, and I think what's interesting and important to look at is, you know, over time, that, that adds up to make a real difference in communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think all of us who are in and around this work can, you know, always feel really demoralized around like what more needs to be done, mm-hmm. you know, for our country to actually live into its aspirations. It's it's just, it's still so overwhelming. But when I think about where we are today versus where we were 30 years ago in many, many, many communities, you know, things are very different for kids. And so I do think it's a really important question. And I, I think it's so important to help people understand the the progress we have made. Yeah. So how do you measure it? Or how do you yeah. um, um, encapsulate it? What? Uh, give me some so, examples. So, for example, I mean, here we are in New Jersey. So I'll use some New Jersey examples. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and and I was studying in in the Woodrow Wilson School, and we were studying at the time welfare reform and mm-hmm. talking about the Camdens and the Newarks of the world. And I think if people had predicted then that we would see. You know, if you're born in Camden or Newark today versus, say, even just a decade ago or 15 years ago, your options as kids are so different. So, for example, just taking Newark, um, you know, there was just a study that showed that 8% of the schools in this country are transformational schools, meaning, you know, most kids enter a school on a trajectory and they come out on the same trajectory. But in 8% of our country schools, not that many schools are putting kids on a different trajectory, right? Mm-hmm. In Newark, that percentage is 40%. 40% transformational schools in there Newark. There are 23 schools putting their kids in Newark on a meaningfully different trajectory. 17 of them are led by Teach for America alumni. There are so many teachers in these schools. I mean, I can't begin to say, but between 30 and 80 percent, depending on the school who are Teach for America alumni. And now there are alumni at every level of the system working to say, okay, how do we, you know, how do we do this across the whole system in Newark? Think about Camden, where a Teach for America alum was named the superintendent in 2013, so six years ago. And, you know, he worked with a whole bunch of other people in the community, including a bunch of Teach for America alums. Five of his eight cabinet members were were TFA alums. Twenty five percent of the school principals were. Um, And, you know, over six years, they moved the graduation rate from 49 percent to 70 percent. They put academic achievement levels on an upwards trajectory at the same time that they kept so many more kids in schools. Um, They cut the suspension rate in half. So we're seeing, I guess we're just seeing that when you have enough leadership going at the issue at every level of the system um, and from outside the system too. I mean, we need to change our policies and, and take some of the pressure off of schools by fixing our social services systems, et cetera. But you know, we can make meaningful progress for kids. So that is 
that's that's amazing. And it makes me wonder if there is a, you know, a secret sauce in Teach for America or a linchpin issue that, that you would point to. I and mean, what is it about the TFA alum that, that make this happen? Or is it just the critical mass of people caring that deeply? That's such a good question. Um, so I do think, first of all, that it's, you know, it, it takes, you know, it's, it's both about like, you know, we're calling upon people who would typically, you know, have the most other options. I mean, there's a reason that all these banks and consulting firms and, and technology firms and everyone else spend a lot of energy and a lot of money trying to recruit, you know, the most promising leaders on these campuses um, to channel their energy into their firms. Yeah. I mean, they're very determined about it, and it's for good reason, because people are everything. Um, and so we make that same kind of intentional, aggressive effort to channel them into this arena mm -hmm. of working with our most marginalized kids. So who we're bringing in, you know, does matter. Um, we're bringing in an incredibly diverse group of those people, I might add. Mm -hmm. I mean, this year, you know, more than half of them are folks of color, 43% of them had Pell Grants, you know, 34% of them are the first of their families to graduate from college. So a really diverse and, and talented group of people. They come in as part of a culture that mm -hmm. has been built over time um, where we just know, you know, it's built on high expectations for kids, responsibility for the adults in the system. Um, you know, and, and then we do a lot. We've learned so much over time about how to succeed with kids um, who do face extra challenges, who are growing up in some of the most marginalized communities. Um, and, and, you know, we work to help all these folks learn from those who came before so that they, um, you know, get a running start. So there's a lot that goes into it. But I, I will say that one thing we've learned is that the experience of teaching successfully um, – you know, you just you learn so much in that process. And so I now do these meetings and I just did one here at Princeton with a bunch of alumni of Teach for America who are sort of helping to recruit the next generation of Princeton students and ask them, what's the one thing you've learned, like the biggest thing you learned from your teaching experience? And their answers fell into two buckets. And this is what I see when I ask the same question now all over the world. You know, half of them said, I just learned about the potential of my kids. Like mm -hmm. I realized that the kids can do anything mm -hmm. and, and that the families are so committed to their kids. So part of it is you gain such a sense of possibility about the solvability of the problem. And, and the other half of it was I realized how complex this is, like that there's – you know, they gain such a grounded understanding in the in the of the sort of complexity of the problem and of the solution. Mm -hmm. So I think you put those two things together and that's the leadership we need. Yeah. You know, sense of possibility, deep grounding in in the actual reality. So yeah. So the recruitment process does seem to be everything, doesn't it? I mean I wouldn't say that actually. I mean I think it's important, but if we didn't marry that process with deep investment in developing within these folks the mindsets and the kind of 
capabilities necessary to teach successfully uh-huh. and, and ultimately to lead successfully, you yeah. know, uh, in kind of fighting the inequities, no matter what level of the system you're working on, um, I think it, it would fall apart. Yeah, because, that makes sense to me. Yeah, that yeah. totally makes sense to me. But it also made me wonder, as I was reading more about the history of Teach for America and how it's evolved, you know, whether this model, whether anybody's tried to apply this mo- model to other needy professions, you know, I'm thinking of things like social work or elder care or something like that. Just mm-hmm. any, has anybody picked this there up? There are to quite a few programs here in the U.S. and actually in in the U.K. and in other places. So, um, I mean, I, there's a new organization this year that launched called Report for America, mm-hmm. which is recruiting folks to work in small town newspapers Aha. to revitalize journalism and and revitalize our democracy. Um, there's Venture for America, which recruits people to um, kind of work in in small businesses in in you know the Detroits of the world like the, where we're trying sure. to revitalize the economies there's a college advising corps like recruiting you know recent grads to actually become you know college counselors um, and and then in the UK there are incredible programs there's something called unlocked that recruits uh, folks to to work in prisons um, there's something called frontline that's recruiting 500 people a year to work in social services child welfare um, so I, I do think it's quite applicable to many different sectors. Well, that's really interesting. And and as going back to the concept of social entrepreneurship, it didn't exist, I think, as a concept anyway, when you were starting out. And there probably weren't things like the boot camps and the incubators and all those training programs to help bright people, bright entrepreneurs get good ideas off the ground. Um, I wonder if you have any ideas or any recommendations for somebody who might want to grab one of these models mm. and run with it. Um, gosh, that's that's a tough question. It's so funny because someone had to explain to me what a social entrepreneur was <laughs> at some point along the way. After so you've that done it just for 20 shows years or you yeah. how much this was not even mm-hmm. a term 20, 30 years ago. Um, you know, I would actually say it's so important to get again to get into the arena and kind of gain proximity to the real issues and and just kind of start from there because I think. Um, you know, I, I'm not always certain that, you know, sometimes we need new ideas because sometimes there are real voids and, and sometimes we need to strengthen the existing institutions. So mm-hmm. um, it's hard to, depends on the idea and, mm-hmm. and where it's where it's coming from. Yeah, I'm sure it's as multiple as the, as the universe of ideas. But um, a couple of years ago, I can't remember exactly how many, a couple of years ago, you've taken this global. Um, I, I, would you describe how yeah. that came about? So. I was, you know, I, I had my head down. This was probably, you know, until let's say 14 years ago, I was obsessed with the ongoing challenges in the United States, which of course require our ongoing attention and are just massive. And I was trying to, working with many others, um, to make Teach for America bigger and better. I, I honestly had not thought about another country. Uh-huh. Like it had never occurred to me that this might make sense in, you know, very diverse contexts around the world. Yeah. Um, but there was something in the water. I mean, 14 years ago, I heard from people in 13 countries within one year. I mean, Mm -hmm. from India to Lebanon to Chile to China to Mm -hmm. many others who were just determined to do something similar in their countries and were looking for help. And that's what ultimately led to the launch um, 11 years ago now of Teach for All, which is a network of independent, locally-led organizations in now 50 countries and growing. I mean, on every 
continent, you know. Um, So these organizations from Teach for India to Teach for Nigeria to Encina Brazil, you know, calling upon their country's most promising future leaders, asking them to commit two years to teach in in their most under-resourced schools and cultivating their kind of ongoing leadership as a force for change. So, I mean, the diversity of problems, it just seems like you've multiplied the complexity of this you know, a thousand fold. What, what, <laughs> what can they bring to each other? Is there a, you know, you, you, you would think so. It, what's fascinating and, and the, probably the biggest, most surprising, I'll say, learning of the, the first 11 years in this global journey has been how similar the roots of the issues that huh. we're fighting are from place to place. I really did not expect this. I mean, I, got on that first plane to go visit this woman, Shaheen Mistri, who wanted to start Teach for India and thought, I have nothing to share. I mean, you know, the challenges are going to be so different in India yeah. than the U.S. And I got there and realized, I mean, even in the first week I, of, of spending time with her, I just realized, you know what, the circumstances facing the most disadvantaged kids in India are more similar to the circumstances facing our most disadvantaged kids here than to the more privileged kids in India. Wow. Um, and and what, in fact, we, we have a common theory of the problem across, you know, 50 countries. I mean, not that there aren't, of course, many, many contextual differences, but the roots of these issues are so similar. And for a while, I found this really depressing. I mean, I spent a year or two just thinking, okay, so we're just fighting the forces of gravity everywhere. I mean... Because, you know, wherever you are, it just everything seemed to repeat itself until you realize, you know, there's a silver lining in this, which is the solutions are shareable. I mm-hmm. mean, and, and we've never realized that in education. So in health, we think, OK, our, you know, the solutions are shareable. Our fates are interconnected. So let's get together and accelerate progress. And we think that in the environment, but we really haven't thought that in education. And it's given us a huge sense of optimism that we can really accelerate the pace of change if we can, you know, generate this kind of growing force of locally rooted leaders in countries all over the world who are also globally informed, exposed to what's working and what's possible in other places. And that's really what we're working to develop through Teach for All. So that's why I'm wondering if what you're saying is that the key, the key learning, the key secret for success that is transferable is building these leaders. Is, is that it? Or are there other, I mean, clearly there's a million things. I mean, we don't want to trivialize. I certainly don't want to trivialize. I know you wouldn't <laughs> dream of it. Uh, I don't want to trivialize the complexity, but it does seem to keep coming back to that. Well, I think, first of all, I think across sectors and across the world, um, you know, people and leadership are everything. And and we kind of wish it would be easier than that. Um, But that's just the reality. And so I I think, you know, I, I once had a meeting with Mark Zuckerberg where I was explaining what Teach for America was doing at the time and Teach for All. Um, And he said, of course, this makes sense. He said, why do you think Facebook works? And I was stumped. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, And he's like, well, it's not the technology. It's the people. Interesting. Um, And, you know, I I think it's – I puzzle all the time now with people across multiple sectors from health to, you know, many other things around how we can put an investment in the development of people and leadership at the center of development because – 
you know, you might discover that an intervention works in one context, but then when you try to rein that solution down on other places, you see it doesn't it doesn't have the same effect. So like the only way to go is to invest in building kind of local leadership capacity and then expose those local leaders to the things that are working in other contexts so that they can bring it back and adapt it thoughtfully and kind right. of continuously improve over time. So I, I think this isn't about education versus the next thing. It's just this is the solution to progress, right? Mm-hmm. And and so that, on the one hand, that's what we're doing. I will say when you get into it, though, you realize, first of all, again, the nature of the problems are so similar. So when I say that, what I mean is, you know, all over the world, we have whole segments of kids who are simply facing a lot of extra challenges. The challenges, all the functions of poverty, lack of early education, you know, lack of adequate nutrition and health care, um, you know, trauma, discrimination, racism, you know, different, you know, manifestations of that depending on the context. And so then those kids who face all the extra challenges show up at schools all over the world mm-hmm that were never designed to meet their extra needs. In fact, they're, you know, they, they show up at the schools with the least resources. And, yeah. and then you've got this prevailing ideology about, about the potential of kids in this circumstance that kind of fuels the whole thing. So that's the problem. So in the short run, any kid in that situation needs as many people in their lives, from teachers to family members, who will go above and beyond and you know help them find a path out. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, we need to fix that system. We need to take the pressure off of schools. We need to fix the social services system, the nutrition system, and the X, Y, and Z. And we need to beef up our schools' capacity so that as long as those disparities persist, the schools can actually provide a transformational education. So, I mean, the nature of the solutions, again, is is quite similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, even the politics are quite similar. That's really interesting. So it kind of makes me ask this question. You know, on the one hand, you've got teachers on the ground doing their two years. And and that's been hugely important. And that became important from the very beginning. But now you've got this enormous army of alumni who who come, cut at it from so many different levels now and different ages and stuff. I'm curious which one is more important. Is that a fair question? Um, you know, I guess I think about this as an effort that, I mean, the two years are critical. And every year after the two years is critical. So, I mean, we don't think about it in two different ways. I mean, we're trying to build a leadership force of folks who will go at it at every level, at the classroom level. And many of these alumni, I mean, there are 10,000 Teach for America alumni who are still teaching in classrooms, right? right. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, but also we need some of them to be school principals and others to get into those school districts and others to launch the social innovations to to patch the holes of the system, right? And become and secretaries of education. Exactly. And so or, you know, governors or sure. maybe one day yeah. our president, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's but but without the, the teaching experience, you don't gain the foundation for the kind of leadership we need either. Sure. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Mark Zuckerberg, and uh, I can't not ask this question. Um, what role is there in, in educational reform for some innovative technological solutions. I mean, we, we've, we've been talking to some degree about MOOCs and, and uh, massive open online courses as a way of uh, educating people that don't have access to local teachers and so on. I'm just curious what your take on that is. And that's obviously just one yeah. potential technology. There may be others I haven't heard of. You know, I think what I've come to to see and believe is that, you know, if when all the foundations are in place, technology 
can be a huge enabler. And in fact, um, you know, we're really underutilizing it. Mm-hmm. When the foundations are not in place, it can make things even worse. It's sort mm-hmm. of like whatever trajectory you're on, technology is going to accelerate it. Oh, that's a nice um, perspective. And so I think there's, you know, some danger in thinking that, okay, like technology alone is going to solve the problem. And there's so many examples mm. of, you know, it, it can really literally make outcomes worse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can imagine the source of distraction that technology sure, can provide. Absolutely. Um, that said, I just um, I just spent some time with some of the innovators across the Teach for All network who are who have launched educational technology companies, mm-hmm. um, but just coming from their experience as teachers. Um, one of them has started a, an organization called Maths Pathways in in Australia, which is you know reaching seventy thousand kids with an adaptive learning methodology uh, that moves kids forward twice as far in a single year as as the kids without hmm. this technology. Mm-hmm. So you think about that. Um, and, and another program here called called Kinvolved, which is, um, you know, essentially enabling school districts to finally have the technology to text parents, um, which has increased the communication between kids and families, massively reduced truancy, massively in the districts where it works, et cetera. And that discussion was so instructive because what I realized in talking with those two and, and the others in, in the group um, is that not only there was their initial idea inspired by their teaching experience, but every single decision they've made has been rooted in a desire to improve outcomes for kids. Mm-hmm. And yet they're in a construct because these are for-profit companies that they've launched because that's the only way they could get the financing to do it, um, where all the incentives are about profits versus learning outcomes. Hmm. And and what it led me to realize and, and what they were articulating so beautifully is that if we want technology to revolutionize outcomes for kids, we need to step back and engage these educators, the folks at every level of the school districts in the discussion from the start um, and really rethink the way we're approaching um, kind of educational technology in general. That's really, really fascinating. I wonder then, uh, you know, you've, you've already pointed to a number of really positive or optimistic trajectories. I, I like to keep it on the on the optimistic because we hear so much negative things about education. What out there, either in the United States or in the world, uh, gives you the greatest source of optimism for the future of mm. education? Um, you know, there are different things I could point to. So I, I am so inspired by some of the real innovators across the Teach for All network. Um, I just got back from visiting Enseñapur, Mexico, um, where an incredible group of people um, are doing really pioneering work that's, that's you know, honestly informing all of our paradigms and leading us to, you know, kind of rethink how we're developing teachers and leaders all over the world. They set out to say, you know, we really need to kind of change what goes on in our classrooms because we need today's students to be leading the future. Mm -hmm. And if they grow up as passive receptacles of information, they'll never lead. So Mm -hmm. we're going to embrace this kind of personalized education methodology where kids basically drive their own learning. Um, And what they realized as they got into it was that they couldn't get the kids to drive their own learning if the teachers themselves 
didn't drive their own learning. Mm -hmm. You know, like all of the adults in the system have learned in a different way. Like Mm -hmm. we need to unlearn the way we were taught and relearn a new way of kind of operating. So, And what does this mean just for a second? What does drive your own learning actually look like? um, It means, well, um, I'm trying to think at the classroom level. I mean, first of all, we want to develop a sense of agency in our kids, like the idea that, you know, they can go make things happen. Um, but usually our schools don't operate with by putting that at the core. You right. know, it's like teachers say, here's what we're doing and you do it. So um, part of it is really cultivating the mindset so that kids are understanding where they are in their performance, where they need to go so that they're setting the goals that they want to accomplish in a particular week and whatnot. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a very different way of approaching just the very design of schools. But essentially what we've learned is that you know, essentially, we, we need to foster the leadership of our kids. The only way we're going to do that is if we foster the leadership of the adults in the system. Mm-hmm. So you start realizing this is all about leadership mm-hmm. development. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just not how we thought about our schools. But, you know, I, we stepped back a couple of years ago or three years ago as a as a network, as a Teach for All network to consider, like, what's our 25-year vision? Like, what are we all working on together mm-hmm. to accomplish? And because we asked the question, what's, what's you know, what's the 25-year vision, we considered where will the world be in 25 years? And we were talking to all these kind of futurists, you know, who were telling us how much the economy is going to change, how much the planet's falling apart. I mean, how much, you know, like we were really considering the state of the world and its trajectory. And for some reason, that process just brought in such stark relief for us. The fact that if today's kids are not growing as leaders who can navigate a changing economy and solve these increasingly complex problems, there's no hope for any of us. So, you know, it really changed our orientation to say, okay, so we're working to ensure that our kids gain the kind of education and the support and, and opportunity necessary to shape a better future for themselves and all of us. So what makes me optimistic is all the examples I'm seeing all over the world, from Mexico to India to many places in between, um, where we're really reshaping our education system to foster student leadership. Well, that sounds like a great note to close on. So I want to say thank you so much, Wendy Kopp, for coming in and talking to us. I can't wait to see the next 30 years of Teach for America. And I want to say thanks to uh, Dan Kearns, our audio engineer, and to Danielle Alio, our producer, and to ask our listeners to please come back again. We'll have some more interviews very, very soon with more fascinating women from Princeton University. Thank you so much. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.